Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Summer is in the rear view mirror, at least for me as my kids begin to think about first day of school in a couple days. I have missed the two of you. We had, we've had we aired those mini, uh, mini-sodes, mm. uh, but <laughs> we haven't actually spoken like this for almost two months. So mm-hmm. um, what is going on? You guys survived? What's what's happened? Yeah, we did, we, we, uh, we did a big summer road trip. And it was three weeks long. And I have to say that now that our kids are just old enough to manage themselves better, like what it means for me is that I just eat like enchiladas for lunch and then take a two hour nap in the car in the front seat. So really feel like we're coming into a whole new era of uh, family Ooh. road trips. Yeah, it's nice. I don't rec- what, what's the, what was the, is there a single highlight that sticks out? Because you guys went a lot of places from what I could tell. I mean, I think the best moment, I don't know if this is a highlight, but when we were in Carlsbad Caverns, which is an incredible place, I grew up going there. It's just astonishing to see in person, but it's quite a hike down. And we were getting our, you know, getting our kids down there. Our eight-year-old, he's there for it. He's loving it. And our five-year-old looks up at me and she goes, you guys are having a great time, but I'm having a terrible time. And I was like, that is exactly... Welcome to a family vacation, sweetheart. So, <laughs> it's a good That's description. Amazing. It was awesome. That's amazing. RJ, how is, how is your, how's your summer been? It's been good. Got some good family time. We spent some time out in the hill country of Texas, which is beautiful. Spent some time on the... The river did some cliff jumping and some rope swinging and some floating and some tree jumping and and uh, it was good. It was great. We had good family, uh, good family time. We had a really, we've had a really, honestly, we've had a fantastic summer. I couldn't, couldn't after the the sort of craziness of the touring for, for the book in the spring. I feel like we really needed some family time and. Um, Got to see my, my family and got to go to all sorts of bodies of water. And this most recently, this past week, um, uh, we got to go to a family camp where I got to talk, uh, speak about the book. In fact, in Lake on Lake Michigan, Camp Arcadia, and it was you know, it's this sort of thing that like um, I don't think it would even cross the radar screen of something we would do otherwise. But then you go and like the kids are having a blast. It's beautiful no one has to do any dishes no one has to feed anyone and there's like tons of like really whole there's no screens anywhere um and it's we just all left being like we got there we didn't know what to expect and we left being like wow that is what we needed yeah that's awesome i'm ready to go on this cast too and because it's the beginning of the school year for some people for kids the beginning of sort of just the things picking up i thought we would uh first start by talking about um what the school what, what the school year means for a lot of kids, and uh, sort of um, this is a not very subtle title for by Kim Brooks in the New York Times this past week. Yeah, let's go heavy right away. Let's do it. Yeah, why not? <laughs> no room for optimism. Let's just go deep and dark. 
Well, hey, what did we say? We're not uh, we're not optimistic. We're hopeful, though. <laughs> Buckle up, um, unoptimistic <laughs> listeners. That's right. It's uh, the title is "We Have Ruined Childhood," and <laughs> by Kim Brooks in the New York Times. And like the she three of us. Wrote, it it Just opened us. up. Just us. Thank you, Mocking Cat. <laughs> uh, according to the psychologist Peter Gray, children today are more depressed than they were during the Great Depression and more anxious than they were at the height of the Cold War. And he cites yeah. studies in 2019. Between 2009 and 2017, rates of depression rose by more than 60% among those ages 14 to 17 and 47% among those ages 12 to 13. And what the, the, this article really focuses on the, the role of school stress in mental distress. And it's, it's backed up by data on the timing of child suicide, that the suicide rate for children is twice what it is for children during months when school is in session than when it's not in session. Uh, whereas for adults, it's always higher in the summer. For many children, Brooks goes on to write, when the school day is over, it hardly matters. The hours outside of school are more like school than ever. Children spend afternoons, weekends, and summers in aftercare and camps while their parents work. The areas where children once congregated for unstructured, unsupervised play are now off limits. Well, uh, just, you know, <laughs> way to make you guys feel terribly guilty going into the new year. What, what, what sprang across your mind when you uh, read this? Well... This is a hard piece, I think, for people to take in if they like work full time, if both parents work full time, we work full time. And then like your kid has to go into an after school program. And then in the summer, like, guess what? You're still working, you know, and they've got to go to these camps. So, yeah, this was really hard to read. What is interesting about our life right now is that I am never on top of deadlines and my kid has always gone to this program, uh, uh, after school program at his school that I'm going to be honest with you is a little sketchy. <laughs> he came home like three weeks in his first year and like knew the F word, you know what I mean? And, uh, which we, I know those programs, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like he, you know, but he got, he got really good at soccer cause he had to play against like, you know, fifth grade boys who were twice his size. So I was like, well, I feel like, um, so anyway, I waited too late to sign him up. And so he like they're full. And so we're having to figure out after school care and we can't afford a nanny. And so this is meaning a lot of like us like trying to manage work and him like mm. um, and what has been very weird is that we've been relieved by that. Mm. Because it's meant that, like, we can't, yeah, it's meant that we can't be like, oh, well, I have, like, I have to stay at work until 6 p.m. every night. And I, you know what I mean? Because, like, we actually have to leave earlier. And even if that means picking him up, bringing him to work, you know, like, I realize we're super privileged that we're in a line of work that, you know, you know, involves Sundays, involves night meetings. And so we can kind of finesse it more. But it's been weird how relieved we are. The other thing I have to say, and this is, really horrible to admit our son broke his arm in like a very glorious catastrophic way a few weeks ago which means that he can't do any of the after school activities he's always done that we're like he has to do so like mm. we're out of sports for the fall we're out of uh violin lessons thank you jesus for the fall and we're kind of relieved by that too which mm. is I mean, feels dark, right? I mean, he broke his arm, but it's it's weird how much of this like push for work and push for um, 
keeping them, I mean, because the article even talks about it's like, you know, even if you pick them up, you're kind of carting them from one activity to the next, right? We're out of that game this fall. And it's kind of thrilling for us. Like, it feels like our vacation's been extended. So, yeah, I don't know. I think about my oldest son, you know, who, uh, think junior year is over. Thank God. And he goes to a great school and he has great friends and I think has by and large had a good time there. And yet even he would say, I think he has some ambivalence because he worked so hard. I mean, he literally was up past 2 a.m. just about every night last year and worked so hard and, you know, got the GPA he wanted, got the test scores he wanted. Um, He actually took a few SAT subject tests in uh, June, and although his scores were great, they weren't as good as he wanted. And so he's like, Mom, I'm taking them again in August. I'm doing it. Uh, And, you know, my son, my my second son, I think based on the experience my first son had, sort of made a different choice about where he wanted to to go to school and the kind of experience he wanted to have. He he wanted things to be a little bit more laid back and have to have some more balance in his uh, life. But I do wonder, you know, you always go, how much of this stuff is external and how much is internal? You know, Sarah, like you were mm-hmm. talking about, how much it, it is living in a culture where it seems like either you're totally going to make it, quote unquote, or you're really going to struggle and there is no in between. Right. Right. Yeah. We do, there's been so much written about like the disappearance of the middle class and like either you're going to be super wealthy and super successful or you're just going to like scrape by and there's mm-hmm. there's no middle ground and, and not having this feeling like, it's going to be okay. You are going to be okay. Your kids are going to be okay. Because like you said, Sarah, like I, you know, like you said, you know, there you are, and Josh are like both working full-time jobs, working really hard, like doing amazing work and you can't afford a nanny. Right. You know, and you probably don't feel flush. And so how much is, is the culture we live in and all these lies that we buy into that, we're, that are constantly fed to us about what we need to be to earn our place in the universe. And then how much is internal? You know, how much is just like my oldest son would be like that no matter what. He's just driven. He just needs to do his absolute best on everything. And it doesn't matter where he would have gone to school. He would have, he would have been the same way. So I, I wrestle with that. You know, how much of this do we do to ourselves? And your story, sir, because I, I totally relate to that. Like, it is a relief sometimes when things don't go according to plan, and you have an excuse. Oh, you Harvey, basically, you have right? an excuse. Yes. Oh my gosh, Harvey. The whole was year, like, I was like, no, no after say. school activities. Like, sorry, Harvey happened, well, and I was like, those, this is a glorious year. You even know, those few, like, well, we talk, even those, I talk about that in. Yeah. Sorry, in in seculosity, they say that like the only way is Americans can really take a break is through catastrophic weather. A natural that's disaster. The only time yes, we actually feel okay, Lord like God. let off the hook, because there's such a guilt factor. I, I mean, I think, but I do think the bigger question this article poses is: so, how do we help our kids? I mean, yeah. I think that's really because you know you start talking question. about suicide that's in children, question. and it's terrifying. Yeah. But I happen to have a kid. You know, I mean, kids are snugglers generally, but you always have that one kid that's like more into it. And, you know, our daughter is like that. And she just makes me stop all the time. And I've gotten better about letting myself do it just to, just to sit with her. And I, and I said to her the other day, cause she's just so sweet. And I said to her the other day, I was like, what are we going to do? Cause she's also super tall. What are we going to do when you're too big to sit in my lap? And mm-hmm. she just leaned over and whispered, and she's like, we're just going to have to hug all the time. And I was like, you have a, I mean, 
you you have this expectation and this plan that like I need to stop regularly just to like hold you and be with you and have our family together. And, you know, I think people feel this pressure that that looks like this kind of prescribed like game night or whatever, you know, this stuff that like we set the standard so high as parents of what that has to look like that then we don't want to do it. And I just like, I want to speak over people that like the past couple of weeks have been awesome because we've had a kid with a broken arm. It's a hundred degrees in, in Houston. He can't go outside for very long because he can't sweat. We've watched a ton of movies as a family, hmm. like laid on the couch together, eating candy, you know, I mean, it's, I, I think I think when we read these pieces, for me, at least personally, I get so overwhelmed that I forget that, like, I'm already doing some of this stuff mm. and that I don't have to make it so hard and so prescribed and like the cover of, you know, Parents Magazine that it becomes out of reach. That what your kids actually really need is just you. They don't need mm. some, like, better version of you. They just need you. So, mm. anyway. Well, that's... that's uh... That actually leads kind of directly into the next uh, piece that we're talking about, because we're talking about a better version of, of, of you, Sarah, and particularly of a better version of women. We got two sort of competing or it's almost like a question and answer type uh, thing going on with these next two pieces. It was published in The Guardian called Athleisure, Bar and Kale, The Tyranny of the Ideal Woman by Gia Tolentino, who's a New Yorker writer and kind of a, a really like a, a rising star, big time star in the kind of uh, essay world right now. And this is published in The Guardian, Athleisure. She writes, the ideal woman today is always optimizing. The ideal woman can be whatever she wants to be as long as she manages to act upon the belief that perfecting herself and streamlining her relationship to the world can be a matter of both work and pleasure, or in other words, of lifestyle. The psychological parasite of the ideal woman has evolved to survive in an ecosystem that pretends to resist her. If women start to resist an aesthetic like the over-application of Photoshop, the aesthetic just changes to suit us. The power of the ideal image never actually wanes. In these pursuits, most pleasures end up being traps, and every public-facing demand escalates in perpetuity. Satisfaction remains, under the terms of the system, necessarily out of reach. I think about this every time I do something that feels particularly efficient and self-interested, like eating lunch at a fast, casual, chopped salad chain like Sweet Green, which feels less like a place to eat and more like a refueling station. The chopped salad is engineered to, quote, free one's hand and eyes from the task of consuming nutrients so that precious attention can be directed toward a small screen where it is more urgently needed so that it can consume data, work email, or Amazon's nearly infinite catalog, or Facebook's actually infinite news feed. Of course, an entire industry has sprung up to give optimization a uniform. Athleisure, or athletic leisure. The type of clothing you wear when you are either acting on or signaling your desire to have an, an optimized life. I define athleisure as exercise gear that you pay too much money for. But defined more broadly, athleisure was a $97 billion category by 2016. Athleisure is reliably comfortable and supportive in a world that is not. I love that. Mm. This is how athleisure has carved out the space between exercise apparel and fashion. The former category optimizes your performance. The latter optimizes your appearance. And athleisure does both simultaneously. In recent years, pop culture has started to reflect the fractures in selfhood that social media creates. Where beauty is concerned, we have deployed technology not only to meet the demands of the system, but to actually expand these demands. 
So I was actually thinking the whole athleisure thing. I was thinking about the first time someone accused me of dressing that way. Mm. And I was 20. And people were starting to wear yoga pants at Ole Miss. Ole Miss. And um, I was... I uh, had a boyfriend in New Orleans and we were around one of his friends and he kind of sneeringly looked at me and said, you're dressed like one of those moms in Uptown. And I was like, what? Like I had no idea what he meant, but it was like the first time. So I'm, gosh, that was almost 20 years ago. I'm 30, almost 37. So like how sort of the progression of this is pretty fascinating to me. And now that I'm like, I actually, I mean, I'm, I literally am wearing like a sports bra, a sports shirt and running shorts. Right? Like, and I have, I exercised today. No, I have not. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm wearing this. Um, cause it is really comfortable. <laughs> yeah, you want to be like, it seems like it's so hard to be a woman. Can we really begrudge them for like having like, this, I know like you know, it's this, come it's, on anything. Well, it's one, it it's one only two acceptable outfits. You're either like dressed for success or you're an athleisure. Like, that's all you can do. And there is no in-between. It's so true. Like, you're either yeah. in this. Like, where I live, you're either in this. Or you're in, like, um, they're, they're Mexican suit. and Guatemalan. <laughs> but they'll, like, do you know what I mean? Like, they, they're the embroidered flower dresses that, like, white women wear in Houston. And it's really short, right? You wear it really short with, like, really high, like, uh, sandals. Like, platform sandals giant colored earrings you know and like you're either in that look or you're, you know what i mean you're either like a white girl in coco right or like you're about to run a 5k like those are the two genres the thing that really haunted me about this piece is how i do find myself in those spaces and i know i'm not alone like i'm not the only thinking feeling woman in the room in these spaces where we've all agreed that this is what we're going to do. I mean, this is a lot like the last piece we talked about, even though like it's really kind of creepy that we're all doing it, you know, um, like I've been to a bar class before. She writes a lot about bar and it is like, and I've been to spin classes before and they do kind of encourage this like sort of religious sort of sexual experience. that's like very unnerving. Um, and we've all agreed to be there to do it because we're all going to like be in the best shape of our lives. Right. Or optimize. We've, we've all agreed. We're going to go to Salada. I mean, we have a bar studio in our neighborhood and it's got like a place downstairs from it that you can eat like very, like here's how many calories is in this, like very, in a very optimized way. You can also get alcohol there. So if, or I know a frequent thing is you go to bar class and then you have too much to drink. Um, so it's, Work you know, hard, play hard. It's just, right, exactly. It's just, it's all really creepy. But that pressure, that pressure to live forever is there. I mean, I know I talk about this all the time, but that really is, I feel like that's the gift as an ordained woman in my area that I can bring to the table. I genuinely believe like that's the sacramental gift that like I've been given in this neighborhood, in this area, because I love where we live. I love the people we live around, but like this description of womanhood is very, very prominent in the area I live in. And I really feel like the best thing I can say sometimes is just like, we're all going to be dead. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I know I say that all the time on here. I feel like I told this story, but I, so I was at something recently 
uh, it was at the beginning of the summer and I was standing there with a group of women from our neighborhood and one of them came over and we're talking about where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And this woman is like super tiny, super fit. Right. And she's like, well, there's no way I'm getting in the pool this summer, not with this body. And I'm like, (laughs) what? (laughs) And I, and I said, seriously. And she's like, oh yeah. Like I can't even let my kids see this. And I just said, you're going to be dead in a few decades. Like get in the pool. I mean, that's like, that's, that's what, I mean, I say how, how did that go? How did that go? And you know, not well, but, um, <laughs> but like, I, I can't, the Holy ghost compels me to tell you mm-hmm. that like, oh, okay. you can't, the Holy ghost. Like, you can't like, <laughs> you're gonna die. You know what I mean? Like all this stuff is this like weird, if we just keep ourselves busy enough, we don't have to face, I mean, not just death, but right. Like an unhappy marriage or any of these things. I mean, I'm always fascinated when I see these women who sort of check all these boxes physically and then have this, like, guy next to them who, like, mm-hmm. just does whatever the hell he wants. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I was about to like, say? I think I know where you're going with this. Much, doesn't Dad exercise, bod. is not dressed up at all. Like, you know, she's in heels, he's in a ratty T-shirt. Like, I'm just like, man, this is like... This is a lot of work and he's not doing anything. I mean, Dave, I do think your point is a good one because I, I think this is I I don't think men have the pressure women have, but I think it's moving in that direction. Like well, the I think, optimization stuff is certainly there. I mean, like, you gotta be equally yoked, right? When they, you know? <laughs> when they describe that I'd never thought about chopped salad places being popular in part because you don't have to look at what you can just spear, you can just shovel stuff into your mouth and you don't spear. have to even cut anything. And yeah. it increases uh, you can look at a screen while you're eating, and that's you know, we talk about the cult of productivity quite a bit and optimization nation. And this is, this is, it's a view of human beings as machines. And it's, we embrace mm. it because we uh, want to be distracted, I think, from what you told that lady at the pool. Um, and we want to also feel like we're getting ahead and, and climbing whatever ladder it is we, of performance we're on. But um, I just, it's, um, she, she has such a great, Way of putting it and the way that technology, you know, certainly when it comes to beauty, but there are other many other ways in which, you know, we 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 use technology to meet the demands of some little L law and it just ends up, you know, expanding those demands and how, you know, that's the way that we talk about housework, you know, once the vacuum cleaner came, uh, it was no longer acceptable for your living room to be anything but spotless. So it's like Uh, it actually increased that sort of thing. So. Um, I don't know, RJ. Where where are you at with uh, with uh, the tyranny of the ideal woman? <laughs> well, I could have made a joke one. there. I could have made a joke. You could have. You could have. Yeah. I'm, I'm just I'm like RJ eats really it. efficiently. Like sometimes he gets fast food. You know what I mean? So I do burger. Like I said, Burger King <laughs> twice a month. Gotta have it Thursdays, man. It's so conveniently next to the hospital. Um, athleisure, just that word. I mean, the, the, the whole thing made me think about 1984, honestly. Mm-hmm. And that that book has been in the public consciousness a little bit. And I actually read it last summer because my son had to read it for school, and he's like, "Dad, this book is so good." And I, you know, the whole notion of double speak, like it, it's just. It, it's insane. Athleisure. It's it's an insane concept. It's an insane word. It's an oxymoron. It's like, what are you talking about? And yet at the same time, this sense that what Orwell got wrong is that I think what he didn't realize is we don't need someone else to do this to us. Mm. We do it to ourselves. You know, the other, the fad um, that we kind of missed this summer, remember the whole, um, which is gone now, this, the selfies you took that would age you? 
what was that called? Oh, yeah. You know, the app, right? And then yeah. it turned out, oh, guess what? Maybe that was a um, facial recognition hack that was uh, perpetrated by like, you know, Ru- Russian intelligence services. And it's like, you know, people don't need to force us into kind of abusing ourselves. We will do it willingly, mm. right? We will enslave ourselves. We will athleisure ourselves to death. And it's it's a... Uh, it's like almost the more the more freedom you give us, I hate the more freedom, the the more we're going to harm ourselves. You know, how much rope do you want to give us? Because we will hang ourselves. Um, and then I also thought the beginning of the article, as she was listing off all the attributes of the what's it, what's it called, the perfect woman, the, the, the idealized, the optimized. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think of Proverbs thirty one, mm. right? Which Proverbs thirty one is kind of rough as it is, and as much of an idealized vision as it presents of what the, the ideal Christian or Jewish woman looks like, it is nothing compared to what she lays out. I mean, what she lays out, into my mind, makes Proverbs thirty one look almost like small potatoes. Like mm. maybe you don't feel that way, Sarah, but you know it's what you've talked about, Dave. It's like the law is everywhere, and when you take away the religious law, which at least has like a little bit of grace and mercy and humanity built into it, you're just going to replace it with something way, way worse. And guess what? You're also going to take out any possibility mm-hmm. of grace, mercy, forgiveness, you know, um, sin, failure. So I got to just, it was really, it was hard to, it was hard to read. And I just feel, yeah. um, I don't want to live in a world like that. And, um, yeah, it's painful. I have to say, bar classes are really intense and crazy for all the reasons exactly. you listed. But also, I've got enough crazy in my life. Everyone shows up and like, so maybe there's a third category. It's white women and cocoa. It's uh, you're gonna run a 5K, or it's you're now a professional ballerina because these ladies show up and you're like head to toe black. Like, and this is always a problem for me. You've got to have long enough hair to put in a bun. You know what I mean? Like. It's a look, and then you get in there, and you work. I mean, it's like my husband told me there's been some – there was a piece a recently – Well, that they're seeing younger and younger um, hip replacements but surgery because <sighs> you're having to turn out – I mean, it's ballet, right? But, like, only you're 27 and never did ballet. Like, anyway, Point, it's uh, – yeah, I mean, it is abusing lift, yourself. Squeeze. The um, it reminds me of one thing. Other thing we missed this summer is there's a couple of sort of high-profile evangelicals who renounced their faith. They're de- deconverted. And this, whoever this, do you mean, David? Uh, well, we're talking about Josh Harrison. <laughs> what, what and then recently, to? recently there was this. Uh, there was a. Um, there was some guy from a worship leader from Hillsong, I guess, who did something on Instagram, and he's like, oh, "I just don't know about my faith anymore." Everyone, no one seems to be talking about the contradiction in the Bible, and you're like, "Wait, what?" Everyone, who, who are you hanging out with? But uh, or, uh, but at the end, he's like, "So I don't really know oh God, what, awesome what's okay, true." Sorry, but he's like, "But I just know, like, you know, I don't know where where it fits in with God, but just love everybody absolutely, be kind absolutely." And you're like. Whoa. See, he like triples down on the law at the end of the thing in like with absolutes. And you're like, because that's all you have. You're leaving behind the mercy and the person of Jesus, or at least you're flirting with it. I don't know what's good in the guy's heart, but I just thought it was uh, unbelievable how um, 
even like it's what sounds like good news. You're like, oh, I'm going to be free of these oppressive demands. Just, you know, whatever. Love everybody at all times unconditionally and absolutely. Mm -hmm. You're like, what? Mm -hmm. uh, no, thank <laughs> you. That sounds like the tyranny of the ideal person, mm -hmm. not the ideal man. Don't and, be you know, fat. You know what I mean? Like it's you might as well be saying the same thing. Don't be fat. Don't waste. Be authentic. All, the, all these, these. That sounds like are, someone who's been personally wounded by someone in the church. I mean, that's what I, I wrote of something about uh, Harris on the site and tried to just be as compassionate as possible because I think that most of these decisions are emotional before they're intellectual. And uh, that's not to dismiss everything, but I think that that's, you know, what the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. We said it once. We'll say it again. And speaking of people choosing things, um, as maybe as re maybe as a response, or at least a partly a response to this um, tyranny uh, that Gia uh, describes so um, trenchantly, is was an article that appeared last week in the Huffington Post, a long one, by Eve Fairbanks, who we've quoted before. It's called Behold the Millennial Nuns, and that's N-U-N-S. Uh, heard, not N-O-N-E. We're talking about a new kind of nun. Don't ever heard of these before. <laughs> Sarah has an announcement to make a <laughs> little hopeful more and more women are being called to the religious life after 50 straight years of decline and these aspiring sisters aspiring nuns are not like the old ones they're more diverse 90 percent of american nuns in 2009 identified as white last year fewer than 60 percent of new entrants to convents did they're also younger the average age for taking the final step into the religious life a decade ago was 40 today it's 24 they're disparate get this they're disproportionately middle children, often high-flying and high-achieving. Typical discernment stories on blogs or in Catholic press start with lines like, quote, she played lacrosse and went to Rutgers, or she was a Harvard graduate with a wonderful boyfriend. These uh, young women uh, that come to find out have one last surprise after being, you know, high-achieving and kind of performancist, I guess. They tend to be far more doctrinally conservative than their predecessors. If you go deeper into their social media feeds, past the wacky photos of habited nuns making the hang loose sign, you'll find a firm devotion to the most traditional of Catholic beliefs. And then she uh, profiles she profiles a bunch of people here. One is Rachel struggled to reconcile the person she hoped she would be with the person she was actually becoming. When she was very little, she was an academic wunderkind. Her first grade teacher had her administer a spelling test to her peers because, quote, I got hundreds on everything. But this achievement began to feel more like a burden. Every perfect score she got was a challenge to get another perfect score on the next exam. Whoa. Her sophomore year of college, Rachel drove eight hours straight from her campus to a discernment retreat in Ann Arbor, Michigan for hundreds of young women. And one of the sisters gave the young women a lecture. A woman of faith, she said, was already majestic. She had nothing to prove. You are beautiful, the sister told them. God loved them already. And the ways that they were broken were the ways God intended them to seem broken for his purposes. It was a joy to feel like not everything was up to her, that she wasn't entirely responsible for answering questions like, does my existence have meaning and who's going to love me? One night, experiencing anxiety while lying in bed, she rolled over and scribbled in her journal, you were unconditionally loved, then fell into a sleep as deep as she could remember. And then Fairbanks closes by saying, we are a thing that is wounded, American society. People raised for the new millennium were to be a kind of final proof that democracy in American society was indeed the greatest that ever could be made. Now that primitive superstitions had been cleared, tech and science and finance reigned, major political threats had fallen, and our hegemony seemed complete. We were, and 
shakily remained utopian in ways that I would laugh at if I hadn't bought into them too. More than half of millennials still tell pollsters they believe they're going to be millionaires. Most of us expected to achieve idyllic marriages, even though so many of our parents had divorced. We were taught that anything you hoped for could be achieved with the right planning, that life is a series of hacks, fabulous tricks, but ones that have a reliable code for how to repeat them. Of course, none of this was true. When I read a passage from one of these books on vocation to an Oregon-based psychotherapist who focuses on counseling young adults, she laughs. She says, that's the essence of what I hear over and over again, that we're raised in a quantitative culture with quantitative goals. So fascinating phenomenon. I know it's a lot to take in, um, but more and more women, young women going into becoming nuns. Um, what do you, where do you, I, I loved this article. I thought it was pretty <laughs> thorough and fascinating. I'm so excited right now. Um, I have never written this piece for us, but I would not be an ordained woman if it weren't for the Sister Act franchise. Um, <laughs> because I've never, never heard you say that. I've ne well, I'd never seen ordained women before, and that was the closest thing I had ever seen was these was Whoopi Goldberg, you know. And I kind of there was also this beautiful for me thing of like. If they're going to let Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> and her, especially her character in that movie, become a nun, then maybe they would let me into religious life. Like there was like, maybe there's room for me in that too. Wow. Um, I mean, I, you know, I joke about how I, I always used to write nun and housewife when I had to ask, you know, when they'd ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I mean, I really felt, I mean, the idea of being a nun was always very compelling to me as, as a kid. Um, so I love that there are these young women that are choosing this. It's fascinating to me how they have this more fervent sense of belief, right? And I love that because I definitely see that in my own tradition where younger people are coming out and we just are sort of clinging to, to the, I don't want to say orthodox theology because that really upsets people because it denotes creedal, creedal faith, theology. Biblical. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're sort of clinging to that. And it is very interesting. The bodily uh, resurrection, know, for example. Maybe <laughs> um, as, an as a random example, um, you know, and I actually, there's something really beautiful about that to me because I think uh, as an ordained woman, and I know it's different because, because I'm not a nun, but, but as an ordained woman, you know, I think a lot of the women who sort of made headway for us to be ordained, I don't know what the end game was for them, but they did not anticipate us at this generation being more orthodox. I mean, that's a general statement, but a lot of the women I think thought, well, if we can get these young women ordained, things will get more and more liberal. And, and I don't, uh, liberal is such a loaded word, but um, we would cling less and less to things like the creed. Heretical? Is heretical a better word? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a hot word lately on uh, certain uh, Twitter <clears throat> accounts, but um, I, I think it's so beautiful. Uh, I was talking to a friend about this phenomenon, and so I'm loving seeing this here that actually the, the, like, I'm so thankful for all the women that worked for me to get ordained. And this is so incredible, but like maybe perhaps the be most beautiful accomplishment in that is that I'm actually allowed to just believe what I want to believe, right? That I didn't have to kind of pick their stream and get more and more radicalized in it. Like that, like that I can actually be myself and believe what I believe. Um, that's too much rambling for me about this, but, um, anyway, I love this. I just think, I think it's incredible that these young women are, are turning in this direction. 
Well, what you said really, really mirrors what happened with the um, presidential campaign a couple of years ago, where some of the old guard feminists were frustrated with younger women who were supporting Bernie Sanders and really just felt like they should be for Hillary no matter what. So it's interesting to see that happening in kind of religious life to some degree as well. Um, I, yeah. No, I was just, I was thinking, you know, that, and I've written about it first before, but the the thing I always think about is being at a thing for women who are, um, it was to celebrate the anniversary of women being ordained in the priesthood. And I was the youngest woman there. And it was all these women who are old enough to be my mom and really sweet, lovely women. But they looked at me and said, why have you not fought harder for inclusive language about God? In other words, why have you not fought harder for us to refer to God in the feminine? And I turned and said, why have you not fought harder for us to have better child care at clergy events? And it's like, <laughs> we weren't exactly speaking the same language. You're going to be dead soon. No, I don't say that to everyone. But <laughs> but it's, you know, I mean, I think there is, there's this beautiful thing that like, it is established enough that we can turn back to the the original in some way, right? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yes. I had mixed emotions about this article. I'm glad you were encouraged by it, Sarah. I, I guess there was a push and pull, right? That there was definitely a some sense of younger women, and I do not blame them in light of the Guardian article we just talked about, wanting to just escape the insanity of our culture and the insanity of the messages that they are being um, presented with about what it means to be a woman in the world, what it means to be a person in the world, what success looks like. Like, I completely understand the impulse to just like run away from all of that into wearing a habit and being cloistered and being a nun and 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 engaging a, in a whole new type of um, existence. And then it did talk a little bit uh, eventually about not just running away from something, but actually running towards something, Mm. you know, running away from the world, but also running towards Jesus, running towards unconditional love, running towards this sense that um, I am beloved by God and valued by God, even if I never accomplish anything, even if I never do anything, regardless of how I look or, or what I do in my life. And that was comforting because I I do think if you're just running away from something like life is hard no matter what and whether you kind of go into uh, you know married life and have children and engage in all that or whether you choose celibacy and become a nun and 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 it's a cloistered you know a habit wearing existence it's going to be tough no matter what and and you have to have some sense of of what you are doing it what you're running towards and not just what you're running away from. You know, like I was preaching recently and talking about a missionary who once said to me, who'd been overseas for like decades, and he said, you know, if you go into missionary work because you love people, um, you're not going to last very long because people are pretty impossible. Like you have to go into it because you love Jesus. And because even more than that, you know you are loved by Jesus in the midst of your own disastrousness. And then maybe you can pass that through to the, you know, sinners that you find yourself ministering to. Um so I find it, it's so, it's just fascinating. And the fact that they're going into, they talked about this, the Catholic church in spite of all the scandals they've gone through. It's, um, it is very, in, it's very interesting. I mean, I did know a bunch of people when I lived in New York that were young and very hardcore Catholic um, people and very much into very conservative Catholic theology, probably much more Ratzinger fans than um, Francis fans. Wow, wow. So 
it, yeah, so it's it's interesting to see. I mean, there was an, a line of the article about you know uh, young people coming to the realization that quote unquote I'm a lot more conservative than I thought I was, mm-hmm. um, which means a whole lot of a whole lot of different things. But at least coming to an awareness um, that they don't have as much control over their lives as they thought they did, and maybe the things they thought would make them happy aren't going to actually um, when they're searching for something more time tested more lasting but it but it does make me nervous i'm just i'm 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 worried about people waking up 15 or 20 years from now and being like why am i here but isn't that true for everybody you know yeah. no matter what you know doesn't everyone have a midlife crisis no matter what kind of life they quote unquote choose and i would say like you know we we spent a lot of time in new york at a monastery that had younger uh, men coming through and i would say that those communities are much better about saying maybe you don't belong here and maybe you need her a lot. You know, I mean, they don't just, it's not like it was, you know, the middle ages, which is kind of incredible. Um, (laughs) The other thing that's interesting to me though, when I think about kind of just women's spirituality is, you know, some of the mystics, some of the women writers um, who were writing in the Middle Ages, and um, they were, it really is kind of anti, I mean, I love that you said, that you pointed this out, it is kind of anti this, like, kale-consuming, bar-class-attending person. I mean, it really, you know, they, the, the way that they write, and I'm assuming some of these young nuns are reading, you know, Mechtild of Magdeburg, I'm assuming this is, like, some of their stuff that they'd be into, um, and it may or may not be, but, but is it really kind of says just like, here I am Lord, like, and mm. all, all that I am. And, and, and I you love me no matter what. And there's something really freeing about that. And for me, I, I get a little nervous when we say, and I'm not saying you were saying this, but when we say that people who are in that religious world are running from something or that they're not in reality, because I actually think sometimes they're in a much harsher reality you know, we can really romanticize them living in those communities. Those communities are hard to live in, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Like in it together, no matter what. It's like being married to a lot of people on some level. Um, yeah. So anyway, it's just, it, it's, yeah, I, I am encouraged by this. And we all know, like, I'm not like the world's best Catholic, but um, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> Do you guys remember a few weeks ago we highlighted something? I think it was a uh, a dean at the USC uh, who had, who is like a dean of religious life or spiritual life, um, and was talking about loneliness and uh, just really real sadness of undergraduates and you know as they've gotten more and more unyoked from institutions that would sort mm-hmm. of and, and more and more even indoctrinated in sort of a kind of autonomy thing. Um, they're less asking like uh, how should I live and and more asking why should I live, mm-hmm. and then he talks about what they're sort of trying to do to help that and he says I remember in the fall we will debut our new artificial intelligence well being assistant named Ari, which will guide students to appropriate support resources. We also offer hot uh, host yoga classes, drum circles, friendship courses, community teas, coloring sessions, laughing groups, sleep classes, connection workshops, meditation retreats, campfire conversations, and primal scream opportunities we've recently appointed our first director of belonging and our for our full-time wellness dog professor beauregard tire biter strolls the campus daily and (laughs) 
when I, this is a joke, when I right? Read this, is, that. this is not real. This is not real. No, this is it's totally real. real. This is in the Boston. This is one hundred percent real. And Jesus, I Mary thinking, and Joseph, or maybe the L.A. Times. <laughs> and I wrote about it, and I was like, "Well, it, it's kind of an anything but God list. It's like yeah. how far it is. You, you like uh, these? Hey, none of these things on their own are terrible, but like it." <clears throat> Primal sc- laughing groups, primal scream. No, I'd show up to primal scream. I'll be real. You I would be anything we there can for go that. to, but God and and these these women at least are finding some solace there. And you know who else found solace this week was Anderson Cooper. Oh my God! And Stephen Colbert. This is the last thing we'll talk about. There was this, uh, you know, Anderson Cooper, uh, who's uh, Vanderbilt. Um, you know, who just lost his mother, who was this amazing matriarch, grand dame of sort of American society. And he's, of course, the CNN anchor, and he has this sit-down conversation with uh, Stephen Colbert, the comedian and television host. And they actually go back to something, I think the most, the biggest post that's ever been on Mockingbird was something, we, it was just like an interview segment of Colbert talking about how he'd come to love the the thing that he most wished hadn't happened, which was that his his father and two of his brothers died in a plane crash when he was a kid. It might have been three. And so he was left alone with his uh, mother uh, to... Um, to sort of survive that. And he talks about how he's come to terms with that. Now, Cooper brings this up because he's clearly in grief and he starts crying. He says, um, he, say, he says to Colbert, he says, you told an interview that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Then Anderson starts crying. He says, you went on to say, what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? And then Colbert there's a pause, and he looks him in the eye, and he's being completely serious. He says, yes. And, he, you know, he was quoting Tolkien. He says, it's a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. I don't want it to have happened. I want it to not have happened. But if you are grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, not everybody is, and I am not always myself, but it's the most positive thing to do, then you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for. And he talks about the gift that was given to him through this terrible thing that happened to him. He says, you get the awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being, if it's true that all humans suffer. You know, at a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in a, in a serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or with my children, I'm understanding that everyone is suffering which is it allows you to love them in a deep way, and it actually makes you grateful for your suffering, which allows you to be fully, fully human. And then Anderson Cooper chimes in and says, you know, one of the things my mom would always say was that she said, I never asked why me when something bad had happened. I always asked why not me. And that's, this is the great question. He says, suffering is part of being alive. Sadness, suffering, you can't actually have happiness without it. And then Colbert responds, you know, in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, that God does it too. God suffers too. You are, you are actually not alone. Um, it's a moment of piercing reality in the middle of, you know, the gloom of, you know, these sort of, uh, uh news media today. Um, I was undone. Sarah, you sent it to me. RJ, I'm, I, no doubt you've seen this. Um, what do you guys think? I mean, I just, Thank God for Stephen Colbert. I mean, he had a very similar mm. conversation with uh, Joe Biden. We, because I remember writing about that because they both had such, you know, he Joe Biden had such extreme loss. I think he lost a daughter and a wife in a car accident in the seventies. Um, he's such a gift. 
I mean, he to us, because he's he is able to say these things and he has an incredible platform and people are able to hear it. And, you know, whether or not that makes people wonder about Christianity or Catholicism is frankly irrelevant to me. What matters is that he's saying it and people are able to hear it and that that's incredibly powerful because to say in our culture right now that suffering is a part of life and people think you're nuts when you say stuff like that. People think, trust me, people think you're nuts if you tell them they're going to die in a few decades. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's also like I think about, um, and my husband and I talk about this a lot, like the people we surround ourselves with. Like we don't actually do that well with people as friends who will say, and of course we're in this complicated dynamic where we're, pre- we're both priests we just have too many priests in our lives and we're all in the same profession and there's always like low levels or high levels of competition. And that can really be a relationship barrier, which is sad because you actually really need people who are doing the same kind of work to talk to. And we say, you know, that often we encounter people who are also clergy who might, they might give you like, well, things are kind of hard, but then they'll just be like, but everything's awesome. And I always wonder about those people. Like, I wonder if they've had real suffering in their life. Not that I would wish that upon them, but I, I wonder if they have. Um, because, or if they've had it and they've just denied it. I don't know, because I think real suffering doesn't let you say that everything's awesome. In this. Like, it doesn't let you, like, lie about the reality of who you are. And, you know, what's what's so powerful about this and the reason it's so compelling to see is that usually when these conversations happen, especially between men, but between women too, they're not going to have that moment where they both say, I've been through something hard, right? They're not going to share in that way. And that's why it's just so powerful to see this on camera. You know, when I saw that video, it reminded me that there's a billboard that's gone up in Houston. I've never lived in a city before with so many religious billboards or really any religious billboards. But this is just, uh, I see it every day on my way to work. It's a big black billboard with the white words, um, sickness is never God's will. Sickness is never God's will. And there's a little link to a website and I went and checked it out and it's like a, you know, local church plant or something like that. And I was like, okay, that is such a contradiction to what Stephen Colbert and, um, what's his name again? The guy interviewed. Oh, Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper. Mm -hmm. What they were talking about, you know, what punishments of God are not gifts Mm. versus sickness is never God's will. And why is it that sickness is never God's will sort of intellectually sounds so right and yet leaves you cold. And and on the other hand, um, what punishments of God are not gifts intellectually sounds so awful. And yet Anderson Cooper couldn't even get the words out without weeping. You know, what is it that, why did he cry when he said that? And I've been thinking about that. And I think it comes down to, you know, one of the things we talked about in the Minnesota, it comes down to hope, you know, that, that, um, Anderson Cooper is struggling still with the death of his mother and with whatever other personal sufferings he has endured. And the question is always, um, did these mean that I've been abandoned mm-hmm. or that is that, or that there is no God or that there is no hope or is, is these, this pain I'm experiencing, is that all there is, is existence just, 
painful suffering, emptiness, and, and, and bleakness. But to choke out those words, um, you know, what sufferings or what, what punishments of God are not gifts, that if you, can, if you dare to believe that, it means that there is a God and he is with you and loves you and is blessing you and is present. And as hard as it is to talk about God being active and present in the midst of suffering and maybe sometimes even willing it, that is so much more hopeful you know, it reminds me of a story that Andrew Pearson told me once about a mother who, um, whose son died in a car accident. And she rushed to the um, hospital, and there he was with her dead son. And a priest walked in, and the first thing he said is, um, you know, ma'am, I just want to assure you, I want to assure you that God had nothing to do with this. Oh, gosh. And she turned to the priest and said, please don't take away the only hope that I have. And it's like, what else is there? Like when suffering, when, when illness happens, when death happens, when suffering happens, you have two choices. One is that there, you know, either God, there is no God or he's absent or he doesn't care or he's abandoned you or he's powerless or he's present and active and loves you and is doing something. And there is hope at the end of the day, even in the midst of suffering. So, um, just wrestling with that because especially when you're in position, the people don't want to talk about this. Like you said, Sarah, people don't want to talk about suffering. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about pain. They want to be positive and they want to be up uplifted, you know, often in kind of a superficial kind of way. And can we, can we risk talking about these real things um, for the sake of those that are actually suffering and, and, and in the name of a greater hope, even though initially it's like, it's repulsive, but initially, you're, it's, it's repulsive. Oh, completely. Like, what do you mean, you know, what do you mean God is working in suffering? What do you mean I can't escape suffering? Like, don't tell me that. Um, but do we have the, the courage to sort of break through that and, and talk about this enough to reach that place of actual hope and faith and not just kind of superficial optimism and glossing over? Yeah, and this, <laughs> this may be like a really trite way of talking about this, but I keep thinking about... The, the piece about this optimized, idealized woman and how God, I mean, I really believe this. God has just given some of us, like, this is like, I don't know why I'm getting teary. God has just given some of us, like, faces and bodies and height and hair and metabolisms and small boobs and, you know, that aren't ever going to fit those categories. And sometimes mm. when I feel the weight of like not looking like other moms, I mean, we had meet the teacher this past week and like you wear high heels to that where we live. Um, I tell myself when I don't, when I can't, I just can't because believe me, you guys, if I had thick, long blonde hair I'd be wearing it. You know what I mean? If I had, you know, all the other attributes you need, if I were not the size of a brontosaurus and I had eyes that could take contact lenses, I'd be doing that. But I don't have that. I have what God has given me. And he has given me that for a very specific reason. And it is that it makes me more empathetic. I've had to be funnier. You know what I mean? Like I've had to find my way in this world because I can't meet those standards. And part of me genuinely on my best days is like, thank God I can't meet those standards. Because when you meet those standards, you never actually meet those standards, right? It's just all the more pressure. So I mean, I take great comfort, not just in the eternal and maybe not in these things that we, you know, when we say suffering, we think, well, you know, I haven't lost somebody in an airplane. Like you wake up in the morning and like you, you've got to deal with 
you know, your appearance as a woman, like they're suffering. Everyone's suffering. But the, yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's also like great, the great love and redemption and purpose of God in that too. So anyway. Wow. Well, I don't think there's any reason just to, to keep going here because this is a, thank you both. I'm so happy to have this input in my own life and this conversation and I've, I've missed you I've missed you and I'm glad Ooh, to be back and we'll be back and I think a little less than two weeks um, this time and I know it's been a little slightly longer episode but thank you and uh, what was the, what was the thing you said uh, Sarah just uh, you're gonna die get in the pool <laughs> maybe yeah. that's maybe that's our new slogan on the mocking cast <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna die in a couple decades get in the pool get in the pool <laughs> <laughs> or Sarah will come and push you in. Um, all right. Thank you. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, friends. <clears throat> Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Please.